Now I want to encourage you today to be in a mind and attitude of prayer because this sermon is not about secret service or secret agents, but it's about how to find the most energizing, thriving, consistent relationship with Jesus that is going to prepare us for a time that is not too far from here. A time of challenge and strength. A time where we will see that the seeds we have planted in our daily walk with Christ has made all the difference in where we stand in eternity. The secret place. So let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's leading and guiding. Gracious Father in heaven, you are our God and we have been reminded that not too far from here, someone needs to know that. Come near to us this morning, we pray. Give us ears to hear, hearts to be receptive, a mind to be open. And as you guide us, may we have willing hearts to walk in the path and allow you to develop us to become what you have envisioned us to be. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture reading comes from Psalm 91. Psalm 91. This chapter has been one of the favorite chapters. In our family, in my wife's family, I think it has something to do with culture because many people from the West Indies or have connections to roots in the West Indian culture often can quote Psalm 91 verbatim, the King James Version. It is kind of like the Ten Commandments for many of them when they look at the beauty of this passage. And this is the foundation from which our message is going to be developed today, the secret place. I'd like to encourage you to read that with me. And if you're home, you can read it. I know the Lord will hear you. But let us read this together. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. According to Realtor.com, in 2015, this property that you see in the background sold for $1.5 million. The two gentlemen you see in the foreground were doing a video tour of a property that in 2015 was $1.5 million it was sold for, but in 2021 it is now being sold for $18 million. And you might ask yourself the question, how in just six years can a piece of land go from 1.5 million to 18 million? Here's an aerial, aerial view of that property. It is, sits on about five acres. Very unassuming, nothing really spectacular about it. It looks like a basic, basic house. But Realtor.com listed this as, and the, under the advertisement caption, digging deeper into the $18 million underground house in Las Vegas. In 1979, a man by the name of Jerry Henderson 
a businessman and a philanthropist uh, who, was a, who was the director of Avon Products. He built this house in 1979 uh, during a time when that very same spot was formerly a place that had a military underground bunker. Jerry, having the pocket to do that, he called it his secret place. Jerry Henderson built what he called a doomsday bunker. And he said that if a nuclear strike occurs, at least I have everything I'm going to need under my house. Here are some pictures of what this looks like. When you first enter the 15,000 square foot house, just 26 feet below ground, 15,000 square feet, five bedrooms, six bathrooms, two kitchens, fireplace, two swimming pools, and all the amenities to host a convention, including a small four-hole putting golf course. It was built, and when it was built, in the time in 1979, they said that the bathroom cost more back then than most houses did. Here's some pictures of what it looks like. Here's a kitchen, ladies. If you were 26 feet underground during a nuclear strike, Jerry Henderson was hoping that his wife was satisfied with that pink kitchen. And then you find the bedroom. They love the color pink, and pink accents are throughout the house. That his, that's his wife's bedroom. He had his own particular bedroom, and that was one of the very many bedrooms in that. Here is some of the areas, and they had murals painted on the wall so that during the day, the wall was lighted up. But when the nighttime came, the walls would automatically dim, making you think that it was now nighttime. And these things were built back in 1979. It didn't cost $18 million, but the reason why Realtor.com listed at that price, they said this is how much it would cost today to build something of that magnitude. Going on, the trees, by the way, that you see underground, you saw in that last picture, it's not just a tree, but the hollow of the tree is a steel beam. This underground bunker was built with steel beams on the roof, the walls, and also buttressed by concrete and steel beams on the floor. But if you walk through, it has green grass. The two favorite colors were pink and green, designed to make you feel that you're still outside on the green palatial grass that really does not exist in Las Vegas because of the heat. You go on to see that they have many, many rooms, and still to this day, conventions are often held there. People can rent this for their own personal use. What an imagination. There's one of the two swimming pools. One of the commentators said, this is a teenager's dream. If you were the teenager of uh, Jerry and his wife, you would love living down here. And here's another tree in the background next to another room or another portion of this amazing structure. That tree, once again, they said the bark is alive, but the tree itself on the inside is another steel beam supporting the ceiling. Now, I'm going to go back to this picture for a moment to finish my commentary. Not only did it have five bedrooms, six bathrooms, and all the things that I've shown you, plus a whole lot more, it had eight air conditioning units, a thousand gallon water supply, and Jerry said, if that nuclear strike happens, we've got all that we need. On the surface, you'll see trees, but what they really were were not real trees, but 
fake trees that had chimney stacks to allow the underground bunker to breathe. What an amazing imagination. The sad reality is he built it in 1979. He died in 1983. Didn't get a chance to even enjoy his secret place. After Jerry died, his wife built a townhouse on the surface, which is what you saw above it. And she died in 1989. But to this very day, it is still there in Las Vegas. You can go ahead and rent this house for your convention, or you can organize a special tour to see this $18 million underground secret place. How futile that we try to provide our own needs when the time comes. When I heard this story, I thought to myself, I can use that, Mike. I can, I can use this story to be the, the sliding in or the, the runway to land the sermon about God's secret place. You know, the patriarch David gives us a glimpse into another secret place. And I would guarantee you that it probably costs a lot more than $18 million. But the Lord doesn't charge us anything to come into his secret place. The good thing about the Lord's secret place is the builder of that secret place is still alive today. Amen. And Psalms brings us this unfolding picture of how beautiful that secret place is and the promise that God has reserved for those who meet him in his secret place. Look at Psalm 27 and verse 5. We read the words from the patriarch David. He said, for in the time of what? Trouble. He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Now, think about that for a moment. God has a secret place, and that secret place is not just for the time of trouble. Because I can guarantee, as we're sitting here and the sermon is unfolding, I can guarantee that many of us have had troubles in our lives already, that if that secret place did not exist, we would have no place to run. Praise the Lord, we can run to God's secret place in our present times of trouble. What do you say? That is not just reserved. And when you think about it, you might say, you know, Jerry Henderson wasted his money, but I learned something from him. At least he had the foresight to prepare for the crisis that could happen. And I thought to myself, how many of us as Christians have enough foresight to prepare for the crisis that can happen? And I said, Lord, what lesson can I learn from Jerry Henderson? And the lesson the Lord conveyed to me was his works was evidence of the depth of his faith. I'm going to say that again. The building of that underground bunker was the evidence of how deep Jerry's faith went. He had no information confirming that a nuclear strike was going to come. But he built that secret place just in case it did. During the week, I get a chance to have conversations with people that work at 3ABN, people that are church members, people that 
are facing the challenges of life now that have their time of trouble. It doesn't matter what day of the week it may be. It could be on a Monday. It could be on a Friday. It could be the earlier part of the day, the latter part of the day. People that face challenges in their finances, in their marriage, in their relationships, with their children, and with the basic elements of life, they are confronted by different troubles, different trials. And I ask myself the question, why would Jerry go through such headache to design and build such an elaborate project? And I could only come up with the answer that the Lord put on my heart. Jerry was a man of great conviction. Conviction makes a difference when it comes to what follows our conviction. If we are really convicted that there is a time of trouble coming, our convictions should lead us to make preparation not only for the time of trouble that we may be alive to face, but the time of trouble that we face in our day-to-day -day life, in our day-to-day -day walk with Christ, in our day-to-day -day dealings with other people. And I can, I can be assured, as I'm speaking to you today, that you had some kind of time of trouble this week. And I'm suggesting today that the only way that we are going to be making it, making it through the difficulties that face our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, not how great is our faith, but how great is our conviction? Faith says, I know it's coming, but conviction says, I've got to do something about it. And that's why Jesus said to us, yes, there are going to be difficulties, but what are you doing about it to prepare yourself so that when these trials begin to test you, you have a secret place that you can run to and be with the Lord? Amen. I've learned to appreciate that. My wife has learned to appreciate that. We have individually, we have collectively learned to appreciate God's secret place. And I've learned individually to appreciate God's secret place. And my testimony is, if I didn't have that secret place, I could not effectively do what I do from day to day and week to week. And even though I still have that secret place, I told my wife about my secret place. She told me about her secret place. And I said to her, honey, we have our devotions together. We pray together. We begin our day and end our day together, going before the Lord. But I said to her, but when you go to work, that's my secret time with God. And I've got to take that time because my schedule just takes off. Anybody know what I mean? Amen. When the week comes and your schedule just takes off and you try to fit God in there, it's almost like a cascading uh, tidal wave. When you look at your calendar, when you look at the things that are going to confront you during the week, you think to yourself, now, how can I fit God into that schedule? Let me tell you something, friends. Put God in your schedule before you put anything else. Because that is the one component that is going to be able to sustain you when the schedule takes off or when there's a change in the schedule or when somebody calls and it never fails to happen. My wife and I have learned, and I say my wife and I, for those of you that don't know who I mean, Angela and I have learned that every time we get ready to go on vacation, we say to each other, it's going to happen this week. It never fails. Every time we get ready to go on vacation, somebody has a major crisis the day or two days before that completely twists our schedule 
And so now we're getting wise to say, honey, we got about a week. We better pack now. Because if we wait just before the day, somebody calls me and says, do you know so-and-so so just got rushed to the hospital? They're in emergency. I'm on my way. But she says, but we're leaving tomorrow. But honey, I have to go. We have learned that you got to put God in your schedule. Don't leave him last. Make God the first priority of your day. Can I get an amen? amen. That's why Ellen White says in the, in the morning, the first thing we should do is put our plans before the Lord so that he can either change them or endorse them as he see fit. When the Lord looked at what's going to come upon us, there was a question that Dr. Luke posed in the book of Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. Here's what he said. Here's what Dr. Luke wrote. When the Son of Man comes, and I like the way this translation puts it, will he really find faith on the earth? Why is Dr. Luke writing it this way? Because faith today, faith today is often just something in our minds. And so many of us worry, so many of us are confronted by anxiety and stress, and so many of us are wondering what's going to happen tomorrow because our faith has not moved into our conviction. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, faith and conviction on the human level are not the same. Faith believes that God will send rain. Conviction says, I'm going to follow God's leading and build me an ark. There's a difference. Faith says rain is going to come, but conviction says, I'm going to prepare an ark. Faith believes that God will respond by fire, but conviction prepares an altar like Elijah did. Faith believes that God can deliver, but conviction says, like the Hebrews, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're going to stand firm anyhow. Amen. Conviction. So our faith today has to go beyond the fact that, well, we understand the 28 fundamentals. We have an insight into Bible prophecy. We can see things shaping up. We can see how the world is going. That's faith. Our faith is being confirmed. However, if we don't make preparation in our daily lives to confront the things that confront us, we're going to find that when the time comes, our faith is going to fail. That's why Jesus, when he spoke to Peter, and he said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And I don't need to tell you, you may be one of those that your faith sometimes fails because you don't have that secret place between you and God. Faith requires something more than just the belief that God does it. Look at James 2 and verse 17 and 18. James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. James says, Thus also faith by, what is the next word? Itself. If it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. And then James says, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So I've got to ask you the question before I unpack Psalm 91, because we're going to go through all 16 verses. Before we unpack Psalm 91, I'm going to ask you the question. 
Does your faith have works? Is there something that you can trace in your home, in your schedule, in your life, where you can say, God and I are on a tight, consistent schedule? Can you pick up your Bible? Do you know where it is? Can you pick up a devotional book? How far is it from your bed? Is there a particular place in your house where, where it's reserved for you and God alone? Or you can go to that place and sit down and say, God and I have had many conversations right here. Can you open a cabinet or a dresser in your house and pull out something that reminds you of how far God has led you? Now, I'm saying these things because that's the reality in our home. We can look back at the pivotal times in our lives when our trials were not normal, our trials were great, and we can go back and look at particular things in our lives. We can say, this reminds me when God was so close to us, we felt his breath. We felt his presence. There was a time my wife and I, it's way back in 1995, where we were on our knees in Yosemite National Park, and it was about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning in our little $29 cabin, and we knelt down, and we said to each other, he's here. We didn't even say God is here. We didn't say Jesus is here. We knew who we meant. We said, he's here. Can you feel him? He's here. And we woke up the next morning with a faith so great and so strong that all that the devil had unfurled on us, we knew that God was going to give us the victory. Amen. And that's not, that's not been the only time, but we can go back in our lives and look at particular events and dates, and we can say, why did God allow that? Because somehow, somewhere along the way, our faith was, was not as strong as it could have been, and God said, I've got to take you back to remember the secret place. And I can tell you today, praise the Lord for it, I can't even boast but I can praise God that I have a secret place that God and I know each other very well. And I'm suggesting to you, yes, we can read the Bible and look at, understand, like I did on the last couple of Sabbaths, Mark of the Beast Part 1, Mark of the Beast Part 2, and get our minds, as my favorite word, calibrated to the times of the end. But if you don't have a day-by-day -day secret place scenario with you and God, all of that information is just going to frighten you because you have no building faith, no strengthening faith. It's like going to a gym, Gold's Gym. Let me tell you, the best Gold's Gym is in the presence of the throne of God. That secret place. And David highlights Psalm 91. Open your Bible there with me. We're going to walk through this powerful blueprint of what we need to develop now. Because Psalm 91 is not a miracle chapter that is encouraging us to wait to the time of trouble. Psalm 91 is a blueprint, and David points out that if we implement this blueprint, God will give us insurance coverage against the time of trouble. Insurance coverage against the time of trouble. I want to share this quotation with you from Testimonies, Volume 5. Very powerful as we lay the foundation. We are told by inspiration 
Testimonies, volume 5, page 452, in paragraph 1. God has revealed what is to take place in the last days. The what days? The last days. That his people may be prepared to stand against the tempest of opposition and wrath. Those who have been warned of the events before them are not to sit in calm expectation of the coming, let me go back, of the coming storm, comforting themselves that the Lord will shelter his faithful ones in the day of trouble. We are to be as men waiting for their Lord. Not an idle expectation, but in what, friends? Earnest work with what kind of faith? Unwavering faith. It is no time now to allow our minds to be, what is that next word? Engrossed with things of minor importance. And here's why. While men are sleeping, Satan is actively arranging matters so that the Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. That's powerful. So what, he, what, what, what we're being told is we know what's coming, but if we sit in idle expectation, if we say, well, I know vacation is coming in three days and two days and then tomorrow and do nothing, don't pack. I've often looked around and I've seen young people. I've said, I, I thought you were going on vacation. When are you going to pack? Tonight. And they may be able to do that. But I can guarantee you, right before the time of trouble, you're not going to get ready for what's ahead of you if you just use one night to prepare. <laughs> Too late. And so David begins this beautiful journey through Psalm 91 with, uh, and ever since I've used this term, it's now become one of my favorite words. David begins Psalms 91 with this epiphany word. He's going to take verse 1 and show us something that really doesn't have to do with a distant event or a distant invitation. Here's what he said. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the what? Secret place of the Most High shall do what? Abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I'm going to pause and rub my hands together here because I know what's coming. Abiding is not a time of trouble word. Abiding is not a time of trouble reservation. Abiding is a daily invitation to hang out with Jesus. Abiding means living with. Abiding means bathing in the presence of. Abiding means I am so connected with him that he is so connected with me. Abiding. Abiding is not you will abide under the shadow of the Almighty, but when we go through Psalm 91, you're going to see that all the promises that unfold are there because you have been abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. Like one of my favorite Philip Craig and Dean's songs, the song is, I've got you covered. I want to know that when I wake up in the morning, God has got me covered. God's got me covered. And I can tell you, there are days that I ended the day and I said, 
Lord, you saw that coming, didn't you? And he doesn't respond to me audibly, but I could hear him say, mm-hmm, I did. But because I began my day in his presence, I was able to make it through an event that if God hadn't seen it, the story would have ended quite, a di quite differently. Let's see what abiding means. Abiding is not a time of trouble reservation. It is a daily invitation. Look at John 15, verse 4. The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus. This amazing key to preparation, daily preparation. John 15, 4, the words of Jesus. What did he say? What's the first word? Abide, Abide where? In me and I where? In you. What it means that is you can't tell where you begin and I end, and I can't tell where I begin and you end. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. It's like a parent embracing a child so tightly that you can't get a piece of paper between them. Abide in me and I in you. And here is the reason. This is a powerful illustration. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it does what? Abides in the vine. Let's grab this. If the tree is not connected to the branch, if the branch is not connected to the vine, if there is no connection, the Bible is saying it can't happen. There is going to be no fruit on the outside of that tree if the branch and the vine are not connected. And that's why he says, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, what does that mean? Hmm. The assurance of future and daily deliverance stems, I'm using this word about the tree, stems from a constant connection. Let me make it even more practical. What would happen if a tree branch disconnected from the vine six days and then just decided to connect one day. How many fruit would we have? There would be a produce and a fruit shortage if the tree said, I am not connecting to the vine today or tomorrow or the next day or the next day. What am I saying? When Monday morning comes, and you just make it through your Sunday preparation for the week. I'm getting very practical today. I was prophetic last week. I'm practical today. If you don't have that connection, that is constant. And here's the down, here's the lull. I've learned this. Here's the lull in many of our lives. Friday comes and, and the Sabbath catches us sliding into home base. We slide into the house one minute and got all our chores done just before the sun, sun sets. Just before. The, or we pull the vacuum out. Happy Sabbath. One minute before sun sets. Ellen White says, guard well the edges of the Sabbath. In the Jewish culture, they would begin their preparation for Sabbath by Wednesday. So that when Sabbath came, they literally celebrated the entrance of the Sabbath. If we celebrated the Sabbath the way they do, you go to Jerusalem and see how they celebrate. The men are together. They are celebrating. They are looking forward so much to the Sabbath. 
They shut everything down, even in New York City. B&H Photo, which is a Jewish-owned business, if you go to their website before the Sabbath, we are closed. We will not reopen until, and they tell you the time, after the Sabbath. Praise the Lord, 3ABN does the same thing. Amen. You can't buy stuff on 3ABN store during the Sabbath. But that connection is so looked forward to that they all week long are working out how can we get ready for the Sabbath. And I need to confess, I, I've had that. I mean, even as a pastor, sometimes I catch myself driving as fast as I can coming home from Sam Club and I see the sun setting in front of me. No response necessary. You all have been there. But I've also learned that when that happens, and I'm still perspiring as the Sabbath hours come in, it just doesn't feel right. Anybody can testify to that? It just doesn't feel right. Put up the room, slide the chair out. Happy Sabbath, honey. It feels, it feels like God is saying, I was wondering when you were going to put that vacuum away or when you were going to A, B, C, D, and E. That secret place. Now, let's put some skin on it. If, and I got a tiptoe on this one because this is still a sensitive issue. If your favorite president was waiting at your house and he says, I want to sit down and talk with you at 6 o'clock. Would you slide in at 6.01 and say, sorry, I'm a little late? Probably not. Or whomever you may put in that category. Or whatever you may put in that category. When something is important to you, God is saying there's going to be a shift in the way you handle that. And John in this verse is saying, until we daily have this thriving relationship with God, we will never see the fruit of his presence appear in our lives. That's why when you look at this verse 4, it says the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Now, to appreciate what that means, because you might say, okay, fruit, I've heard the phrase fruit before, but to appreciate what that means, let's go a little deeper into the text to find out what kind of fruit Jesus is saying that we are incapable of producing. All right? You ready for it? Here we are, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Why does Jesus use the phrase or the word fruit? Because we got plunged into this mess by one fruit. So when you read Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, don't pluralize the word fruit. It's a singular word. All the, all the properties that are being listed by the Apostle Paul here are like the, are the various vitamins that are all contained in this one fruit. Amen. So when we read Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, the Bible is not saying, well, eventually all these things will show up in your life. Can I make it very clear? If you bite an apple, you're going to get vitamin C. You're also going to get vitamin A. You're going to get vitamin D. You're going to get a lot of different vitamins in that particular apple. It's all there. You don't say, I like an apple with vitamin C in it. Come on. Right? You don't say that. Oh, I'd like to get an orange. Do you have an orange with any vitamin C in it? 
Because the last one I bought only had vitamin A. Are we getting it? What the Lord is saying is when we partake of the fruit, these qualities are going to show up in our lives. Look at it. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. And let me reiterate this. Let me go ahead and segue into this passage by saying, the Lord is saying, if you don't abide in me, these fruit will not show up. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, can we read this together? Love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and then the apostle says, against such there is what? No law. Meaning there's nothing to prevent that from showing up in your life. What is in essence he's saying? If you have this daily relationship with Christ and the crisis comes, you'll still be a person that exhibits God's love. You'll still have joy when everybody else is angry. You'll still be at peace when the world around you is falling apart. Here's another one. You'll still be able to control your temper when the other person's long suffering has ended an hour ago. You'll be able to be kind in a moment where people could say to you, how were you able to be kind after so-and-so did that to you? You will be able to show the goodness of God when you really don't want to. But let me make a point here. Oranges don't decide to be oranges. The tree and the connection determines what it's going to be. You see, the sap that's coming from the root, through the bark, through the vine, through the branch, into the branches, they, it eventually gets into the fruit. And the fruit doesn't say, I don't want to be that. Once the seed is planted, it is going to become what the seed contains. Once the presence of Christ is planted in our lives, here is the, here is the bulletin. We will become what the seed contains. Pastor, what are you saying? If we are abiding in Christ, we will be what Jesus is. Not because we decided today I want to be that, but I'm abiding in him so frequently, I'm abiding in him so consistently that my gentleness, my self-control, have you ever lost control? You ever done one of these? You do that because you, you know you want to say something. And you're fighting because you could feel that word just climbing up. However it gets there, it's climbing up. And you go. Reason why this is good for me is because I know I've been there. But what is exciting to me, and I'm going to use the word exciting here, is because somewhere along the way, we should be able to trace the evidences in our lives, and it ought to get us excited that Christ is really, in fact, changing us. Amen. Somewhere along the way, we've got to get beyond the label that, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and, you know, I keep all these things, and I do this, and I believe that. 
Somewhere along the way, we got to get beyond not just all of that. We have to say, not only do I believe this, and I know it's in the Bible, but I am so excited that I can see myself becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But you can't do that if you're not abiding in Christ. Well, let me ask another question. How much effort does it take for the branch to produce that fruit? Nothing. It takes no effort at all for the branch to produce that fruit. Well, how does it happen? The branch simply abides. It's connected. Now, this is, this is not alive, but that's a beautiful illustration. That's why the moment, and this is kind of a, I love giving my wife, you know, when those special occasions come, some of you guys do it all the time, but when special occasions come, I like to give my wife roses and beautiful things like that. There's only one downside to that. Once they are disconnected from the tree, they're going to die. Husband's so proud, he walks through, dozen roses, honey. Like seven days later. And wives don't want plastic roses. They want the real stuff. Amen, ladies? But the point I'm making is, once we are disconnected, life can only last but so long. What am I saying? If you come to church and you get the push and you get the encouragement and you study on the Sabbath and you have your Sabbath school lesson and you feel good in the fellowship, and this all gives you a booster when you leave church on Sabbath morning, which I hope it does, if you are relying on that to, to sustain you Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, it's going to wither. It's going to die. And as good as that Thanksgiving meal is, you are going to starve in about a day if you don't eat again. The same thing is going to happen in your Christian walk with Christ. If you don't have that constant abiding, but the great challenge today is Christians are having a difficult time abiding in Christ because the problem is, in their responsibility to produce the fruit, they think it's something that's done naturally. No, I am not a naturally loving, kind, compassionate, long-suffering person. I can take you back to the days when I used to punch holes in the wall because I had such an anger issue. Am I telling the truth, honey? Yeah, both of us. She was selfish. I was angry. But we dated nine years. <laughs> Every now and then, I guess there's some residual left. Oh, yeah, we dated, we, man, we, were, we, we dated from 16 to 25 before we got married. Don't recommend it, but it was a long time. And until um, her brother confronted me one day and asked me if I'm going to date his sister forever. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to date her or you're going to marry her? Which one is it? And he was so angry, he, he was serious. You're going to date her or marry her? Which one is it going to be? I said, marry her. <laughs> he said, when? I said, next month. And it's been... Next Sabbath will be 38 years. <laughs> he put me on the carpet. I'm not one for long dating, but I tell you, I, if you're dating somebody, pray for a brother like hers. But we had those days when we had to get past our selfishness. Getting angry in Manhattan, playing video games as a young folk and getting angry. She wants all the prizes. I said, well, let me get, no, I want all the prizes. 
And I got so mad, I threw my umbrella into a water fountain. When, I, my, my, when, my, when, my, when my anger calmed down, I couldn't go in the water fountain to get it because the water was too deep. You've been through some stuff. <laughs> Thank the Lord that he knows how to get us right. Amen. We're not all, we're not all there yet. Come on, say amen. We ain't all there yet. God's going to put your fruit through some chopping blocks just so he can squeeze the juice of his presence out of you. But we got to get to that place. And here's the thing that David writes. See, see, how productive, and this is going to get you right where you live. You know, the tree can't grow fruit if it just connects one day a week. How happy would you be, you modern person, if your internet just worked one day a week? I won't even ask Mike. I already know the answer. Don't even ask me. I know the answer. Don't ask anybody in production. Right, Janelle? We know the answer. We will not be a happy camper. What do you think the Lord feels? When he has unlimited, high-speed, divine fiber optic, clear wave internet that he's just waiting for you to connect to every day to pour into you and you refuse to connect. Wondering why your life is out of whack and you can't get a prayer through because you're not connected. Look at the benefit of connection. Now I'm going to take you into hyperwarp speed. Ready to go to New York? Here we go. Psalm 91 verse 2. Look at this. David starts to talk about the blessing of remaining connected. This is powerful. He said, I will say of the Lord, this is a connected person, I will say of the Lord, he is my what? Personal. He is my refuge and my fortress and my God. In him will I trust. That's personal. You got anybody like that? That you can call in crisis times and say, he is my agent. He is my insurance agent. He is my doctor. He is my physician. God is saying, if you stay connected, you don't have to worry about our relationship. He is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my God. In him I do trust. I will trust. And Satan is determined to replace our connection with God to substitute connections. That's why Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3 makes it very clear in this modern society, you shall have no other gods before me. And the gods could either be digital, the gods could be another person, the gods could be your money, it could be your possession, it could be your toys, it could be anything. But if the devil can replace the relationship that David boasted about, my God, if he can replace that relationship with something that's transient and remedial and brings exciting moments and then disappoints you later on, he says, I got you exactly where I need you to be. When anything eclipses God, the negative impact is amazing. My refuge, meaning when you abandon God, you have no reliable protection. My fortress, you have no one to depend on in times of difficulty. My God, all the other gods will fail you. Money, possessions, and people. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's why David made it very clear in Psalm 146 in verse 3. He says, when you look for substitute gods, what are the first two words? 
Say it. Say it together. Come on, give me some umph. What are all those words? Do not. Say it like he would say to your kids. Do not do that. He says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in the son of man, whom there is what? No help. When difficulty comes, nobody can help you. When the trials of life hit you that man can't even see coming, who's going to help you? I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. And when we put our trust in God, look at how David unfolds the promises. Yes, here it is. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And by the way, the reference there is verses 3 to 6. Verses 3 to 6. That is my typo. Psalm 91. Verses 3 to 6. Notice what he says. He says, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the what? Fowler. And from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers. When you're reading that, take that as a promise. He shall cover you with his feathers. Notice what else. Under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and what else? Your buckler. Now we continue in verse 5 of Psalm 91. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the hour that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at what? At noonday. Is not that an amazing set of promises? It's like your friend saying to you, if you need me, call me. I got you covered. I'm having difficult, perilous times. The, the enemy is after me. I need to take refuge. I need somebody with a shield and defense. I am afraid. Your friend says, just call me if any of these circumstances arise. But God is saying... If you abide with me daily, whenever any one of these circumstances arise, I have got you covered. <laughs> what did you say, honey? Ain't no mountain high enough. Uh-oh, you're going back to the Motown days. Relax. That's right. Ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> you got my wife singing songs on the front row there. But I understand what you mean. No mountain high enough, no valley low enough, no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. See what happens, honey? Brought out my past. But it fits right here. When you have a connection with God, there is nothing that can keep God from getting to you if you don't allow anything to prevent you from getting to God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, what shall separate us? What shall separate us? I'm at the place now hmm, where I'm saying like the little kid, nothing, nothing, nothing. I ain't worried about nothing. And I'm saying that not because I have confidence in myself, but when I serve the God that meets me in my secret place. I don't worry about nothing. Amen. Say it again, Karen. What peace. what peace. David said, 
And Isaiah the prophet says about God, I am God. Look at that. I just took the latter part of the verse, Isaiah 46 and I, I am God. I am God and there is what? None like me. And I could guarantee today the reason why so many of us face the trials we do is because we haven't gotten into that secret place with God. Can you imagine having somebody that is available to you 24-7, every day, every moment of the day, and he's saying, I just want to hang out with you. I just want you to be in my presence. And if you are, there is nothing that you can ever be confronted by that I cannot handle. And we'll discover that the Lord will provide insurance coverage that kind of falls along the lines. You're in good hands with Jesus. Amen. And like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. Amen, somebody. Amen. But I want to pause for a brief moment, and I want to talk to the ladies. Ladies, are you awake? See, ladies... This advice that David is giving is not just for men. David, and David is pointing out, and I know that when we read the Bible, we think of Elijah and Enoch and Moses and Noah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these great men of the Bible. But do you know that this advice that David is giving applies to women also? Husbands, you can say amen. Okay, I, I guess you've been told not to. <laughs> because men are not the only ones in the Bible that had a difficult time trusting and staying connected to God. I'll give you 10 of them. I'll go to them very quickly. Women in the Bible that had a difficult time trusting in God. Let's start with exhibit number one, Eve. Did not believe God. So she decided, I can't believe what God said, so I'm going to go ahead and investigate. And she found out that the devil is in the details. Let's not stop there. Sarah, God said, I'm going to give you a child when you're old. Sarah laughed. Laughed at God's promise, said, really? You're going to give me a child when I'm old? She doubted God's ability. And you know the rest of that story. Impatience. Let Sarah to give Abraham permission to do stuff that God did not approve of. She laughed at God. Hagar, there's another one. Hagar, God said to her, I'm going to make of your son a great nation. But when she was in the desert facing a lack of water and her son was about to die, she doubted God's promise. Hagar, and the Lord said to her, didn't I tell you that I would make of you a great nation? So don't worry about water. You think that water is going to prevent me from fulfilling the promise I made to you. Ladies, when God makes a promise, nothing that you face will prevent God's promises from happening in your life. Hmm. And then we have Rebecca. You know Rebecca. She didn't want her son Jacob to be left out. So she decided to go ahead and devise a scheme to steal Esau's birthright. Some women don't want their children to fall behind and they try to fix it themselves rather than waiting on God. 
Well, let's not stop with Rebecca. You remember Rachel? She was impatient, couldn't wait on God to give her a child. So she said to Jacob, since God ain't going to be able to do it, I'll go ahead and give you my maid. Impatience. Ladies, be patient. I can't tell you things that are too detailed, but I can tell you that a lot of women struggle with impatience. Not sure if any of them go to this church. But some of you husbands know what I'm talking about, and you better not say amen right now. <laughs> then you have Miriam, who saw God blessing Moses and said, you think you're the only one that God speaks through? God said, Miriam, for that, you will become a leper. Miriam, doubting God's divine leading. Let me, let me say something here on this one, ladies. If God reveals something to your husband, don't be a Miriam. And so you think that God only speaks through you? There'll be times that God will share something with your husband that he doesn't share with you. And if you don't allow God at that moment to give your husband wisdom and guide your family, you could have a Miriam moment. But you don't want to go from a Miriam moment to a Job's wife moment. Because Job's wife said, look at all the, look at all the stuff you're going through, Job. You just need to curse God and die because he is not reliable. And I know, my wife and I know, a lot of pastors who would love to be in the ministry, but their wives just say, I ain't having that. I am not having that. I know so many men that want to be in the ministries, but their wives are just not having it. You want to do that? That's your thing. That God, you want to go, I ain't going for that little bit of money. I need me some more money. And they fall into the Job's wife category. That's your God, you do that. Then there's Lot's wife. The Bible never said her name. It just associated with her with Lot. God told her, don't look back, refusing to take God's warning. She became the first human salt shaker. When God says, go forward, lady, and don't look back, ladies, don't look back. Forget what's behind you. Come on, somebody ought to say amen. amen. And then the last two, these were sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus, see, your problem is your schedule is too busy. If you would have been here sooner, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, Oh, 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 you thought that I missed the schedule? Whether I come early or come late, according to your calendar, I am still the resurrection and the life. Amen, somebody. So, so God is always on time. He never, he never, he never fails on the promises he makes. So we don't need to mention the men in the Bible. I'm not going to talk about the men in the Bible that did not distrust God, that did not trust God, because the women know who they are. You'll get that on Tuesday. But when you have a daily study life, when you have a daily prayer life, and when you seek the Lord daily for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, look at the rest of the promises. Here we go. Psalm 91, verse 7 and 8. The Lord is saying, if, you, if I'm with you, when the difficulty comes, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Now, Psalm 91 is not just based on the goodness of God, but Psalm 91 is based on God's response in our commitment to him. 
And I can tell you, based on this passage, there are things that could have been a lot worse for me, but God in his mercy made this promise to me that if I commit myself to him, you're going to see it happening all around you, but I'm going to prevent you from it. But it goes on further. And the reasons are stated right here in verses 9 to 14. What's the first word? Because. What's the first word, Bob? I'm, I need to hear you, Bob. Because. because. God is not saying, I'm going to do this just because I'm God, but because. What's the next word? You. you. This God said, since you did what I've told you to do, this is what I'm going to do for you. Because you. Psalm 91, verse 9, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, what? Your dwelling place. Here's the promise. No evil shall befall you. Who else can say that but God? Nor shall any plague come near your dwelling when it's happening all around you. I can tell you how many times God sustained us through car trouble and difficulty and financial ruin because we have made God, even the Most High, our dwelling place. Amen, somebody. He says, why? Verse 11, for he shall give his angels what? Charge over you to keep you in how many? All your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against what? A stone. God is saying, well, I'll even watch out for the obstacles in front of you. I'll protect you from the things that you could run into, the things that can hinder you. I, my angels will say, this way, that way, go left, go right, stop, let me move the stones. God is saying, I've got a plan that unless you implement it in this secret place, you will never be able to benefit from the fine print in my divine insurance policies. He doesn't stop there. He said, you shall tread the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. And look at how he ends. Because he, now speaking of us, has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high. Why? Because he has known my name. And all of God's people thought about saying amen. Have you had angelic protection? Have you looked back on that near-miss accident and tried to credit yourself as being a good driver? No, that's not it. That's not it. Psalm 37, verse, Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and do what? Deliver them. This only happens by the daily, moment-by-moment -moment commitment to Christ. It opens to us the last two tremendous promises of Psalm 91, the daily, moment-by-moment -moment commitment to Christ opens to us promises that we don't even understand are available unless we are in that secret place. If you were not reading your Bible, you wouldn't even know these promises are there to claim. It's like an insurance agent saying, you call, well, I need coverage on this. Well, did you read your policy? It's already there. Well, do I need it? Did you read your policy? Read your policy. Read the Bible. It's already there. Look at the promises we end on. Psalm 91, verse 15 and 16. Beautiful. He shall call upon me, and I'm going to suggest to you this is a daily call. When you call God daily, when you talk to God daily, you don't have to worry where God is when difficulty comes. Amen for that. 
He shall call upon me, and what will happen? I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You notice what that? I will, I will, I will, I will. Praise God. When we are in that secret place with God, we have a God who is not like the devil. The devil said, I will, and he didn't. God said, I will, and he does. And look at my closing quotation. Messages to Young People, page 114 in paragraph 2. Sanctification is a daily work. What kind of work, friends? A daily work. Let none deceive themselves with the belief that God will pardon and bless them while they are trampling upon one of his requirements. The willful commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Whatever may be the, I like this phrase, whatever may be the ecstasies of religious feeling, Jesus cannot abide. What is that word? Abide. In the heart that disregards the divine law. God will honor those only who honor him. When David ends by saying, I will deliver him and honor him, God is saying, wait a minute, there's some conditions. I will honor you if you honor me. So let me end with this point, my friends. You want to have less trials and difficulty in your life? You want to minimize the heat? Let me make a point. The heat does come. The trials do come. But what would they be if we didn't have that secret relationship with God? You may have heard about David Green. David Green is a billionaire, but he's a Christian. David Green. People that know David Green said, they look at David Green's life, and they said, David Green set a good example for Christian businessmen and for Christians in general. David was born in Emporia, Kansas, in the year 19. 41. And people that know him, and they saw his growth in his Christian walk getting stronger and stronger as he got older, praise the Lord, it should get stronger as we get older. They remember what David would say when they asked him this, the reason for his success. And David said, if, if I have anything, or if you see me with anything, it is because it is given to me by my Creator. If I have anything, if you see me with anything, it's because it is given to me by my creator. And David was a billionaire who could buy anything. But he said, hey, I may have money, but the creator made this possible for me. You don't know David, but you know Hobby Lobby. That was David's dream. A committed Christian man who, he said, the secret to my success was my daily time with God. And now David according to the U.S. market, has more than 520 Hobby Lobby outlets around the United States. Why? He's, he's ranked among one of the 400 richest Americans with a net worth of $6.8 billion, and that was in 2018. Why? Because David Green said, the strength of my life is my daily time with God. 
And you can walk in Hobby Lobby today, and there's something about Hobby Lobby that's different from other stores when you walk in. It's relaxed. You'd often hear Christian music. The people that deal with you at the cash register are so kind and nice. The people that deal with you in the back, they have a spirit about them that's not in a hurry. Now you know why. You see, when God affects one person in that daily avenue of life, everybody around that individual will somehow be affected by that. You want to affect the world around you? Start by spending time. When you commit to God in that secret place where you are alone with God daily, in that secret private place, God will give public evidence of his presence in your life. And here's what he promises, the last text. Your father, Psalm, I mean, Matthew 6 and verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will himself reward you how? Openly. You want people to know that you've been with God? Don't try to show that you've been with God. Let God show that you've been with him. Let God be your advertisement agent. Let God say, I know him. He knows my name. I know his name. I know her. She knows my name. We talk all the time. Do you have a friend like that? We talk all the time. That's the kind of friend I want to have with Jesus. Amen. Prophecy is great. But if you don't have a friend like that, prophecy means absolutely nothing. I'm looking forward to see Jesus, not because prophecy says he's coming. I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward Karen, to see Jesus because I've been talking with him so much I can't wait to meet him. Anybody else here? So this week, do something different. The key to your relationship with Christ is spending time walking in to that secret place when he invites you daily to come in. Go in. And you'll find him sitting there waiting. I'm tempted to tell you another story, but I won't do it this morning. I was on a plane ride going to Miami to meet my wife and her family. And I had, an, I had a moment with God. I was sitting next to a young lady. I think she was uh, Chinese or whatever. And there's another guy on the outside. I was sitting by the window. And God took me in that moment to a secret place where I was overwhelmed by his presence. Tears came out of my eyes when God literally showed me. I went into a, a room that... The reason why I chose that color today, Joe, is because that was the color of the room that God showed me. It was an azure blue room. The throne was azure blue. And God was sitting on it with his white robe covered in azure blue light. And he leaned forward and said to me, come in. Let's talk. I was so overwhelmed by that that when I landed and went to my brother-in-law's house in Fort Lauderdale, I sat them down to tell them about it, and I could not recapture that. And the only thing that broke me out of that was when the flight attendant says, prepare for landing. And I had to wipe my eyes so that the lady sitting next to me wouldn't see all this water on my face. Let me tell you something. When you're in that secret place with God, something's going to happen. And you will never be the same. And he'll give public evidence that you have been with him in his secret place. Do you want that? Amen. That's the best preparation we can make for the time ahead of us. Let us stand together. Gracious, loving Lord, gracious, precious, loving Savior.
I want to dwell in the secret place of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty where Satan can look at me from a distance, but he dare not come into your presence. Lord, you're making that available to us today. You're saying to your people, it's there, the key to your growing confidence in me. Spending time in that secret place, picking up the Bible, reading all the words of love and compassion and promises that I have for you that can only be found in that secret time that I've chiseled out, that I've shut the world down, that I said, I must have this or I will die. Help us, Lord, to go and find that secret place in our own personal lives. For our family, may they be one. For our children, may they grow up to see, Daddy, Mommy had a secret place, and now I do too. And finally, Lord, the day is going to come when that secret place will reveal what has always been a secret to us, and we'll be able to see your loving face, hold and touch your loving hands, and see how much you have loved us. And all the things that have been kept secret that can't even come to our minds would one day be made sight as we stand before you on that glorious day. Prepare us for it. Guide us for it. May we be patient, not only a people of faith, but of conviction, knowing that the storm is coming, but we are moved to add works to our faith. And when we spend that secret time with you, may it be evident to all that he or she has been with Jesus. And we ask you for this blessing that you may be glorified. In your holy name we pray. Amen.